Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Vineyard Church, Woodstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Riverside. Right then, I'm going to hand over to Simon. Thank you. Seamless hand over there, beautiful. <laughs> How are we doing this morning? I've still got this cold, which is a bit of a shame. Um, and I think a few folks are in the midst of things that they are feeling like are pressing them or they're struggling with. It might be health, it might be circumstances. So we're going to talk this morning about God in the storm. It's easy to feel expectant that God will use us when things are great, when the sun's shining, when things are going well when we, uh, circumstances seem to be going our way. But then when things turn, and when things aren't so good, and maybe the sun isn't shining so well and situations hem us in, then it can be hard to see God in the midst of those circumstances. It can be hard to have any expectation that God is there or that God wants to use us in the midst of those situations. We have this, um, this incredible book in our Bibles, the book of Job, but then he has these incredibly difficult circumstances to endure. He, uh, he loses property, he loses family members, his health uh, is attacked. And um, his friends, his three friends come to comfort him and they start off reasonably well, but they quickly decline because they fall into the trap of assuming that Job must have done something to upset God. And that's why his life is going down the pan. And, um, and they start to put the blame on Job. And they say, come on, Job. Fess up, you must have done something wrong. You must have done something to upset God. You appear to be this thing, but actually you must be something else because God's clearly angry with you and that's why you've got all this difficulty, this hardship, this pain and grief in your life. One of his friends says, uh, you know, does God ever blame the upright? Are the upright cut off? Are the innocent, do they ever perish? You know, basically, God won't reject you if you, if you basically fess up and just say, you know, you're an evildoer. And that's what the problem is. You're an evildoer and God's punishing you for being an evildoer. Zophar, his, his third friend, is, uh, says, if your iniquity is in your hand, put it away. And surely then your, your face will lift up without blemish and you'll be secure and you won't fear and your life will be brighter than the noonday. And so they end up with this very simplistic formula of life that if bad things are happening, then God is clearly angry with you or punishing you and therefore just sort your stuff out and God will be nice to you again. Well, God doesn't, sorry, Job doesn't fall into this trap. He doesn't fall into the trap of, of blaming God for his circumstances, even though his friends are encouraging him to go that way. He doesn't fall into the trap of starting to blame himself for his uh, situation. He's confused, uh, he's in pain, but he, he maintains his integrity in the middle of the storm. And I think it's really key for us as believers, because there's so many storms come into our lives in different ways, that we need to keep our bearings in the midst of storms. Our understanding of the kingdom, which we touched into last week, means that we understand that evil and good coexist at the same time. It's like two railway tracks. You'll never have a point in your life when everything is great. I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen. There'll be good stuff and there'll be bad stuff coexisting at the same time. And uh, the world tries to sell us a dream, normally around retirement, that we can reach a place where there'll be no bad stuff anymore. There'll be no cares or responsibilities, endless golf, endless cruises, no financial worries. 
But as soon as you're ready to retire, your body starts packing up. So you've got a whole host of other worries to worry about. You know, there's always these twin rails of good and bad that are happening and coexisting at the same time in life. And we have to learn to try and navigate uh, these rails that uh, life presents to us. And we have a spiritual dimension. We understand it's not just about stuff that happens to us. There's a spiritual battle that's waging around us of good and evil that we're part of. And we're on the good side. We're on the winning side, trying to overcome the forces of evil that are looking to to kill and steal and destroy uh, and undo all that is good in the world around us. But we aren't exempt from suffering. I watched a bit of the rugby yesterday. I'm not normally a rugby fan, but I watched a bit of the rugby. watched England win. Yes. And it's crunching, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. These guys slamming into each other. You know, you think, oh, what does that feel like tomorrow? I mean, what does it feel like? And there's this, this contending that's taking place for the, for the game, and it's this crunching sort of man-on-man sort of battle that's taking place. And it's like that in the spirit. You know, it says in Scripture, we wrestle. We wrestle in prayer. We wrestle. And the, and the analogy is hand-to-hand combat that we do as we try and contend in this life for good and for what God wants for us. And today we're going to look at a real storm in the book of Acts, Acts 27. We're looking to the story of Paul, who's travelling under Roman guard for an audience with Caesar in Rome. And I've got a little video just to prime us, so we're going to dim the lights and we'll just pop this video on and you can have a bit of background. We've been exploring the book of Acts, which was written by a man named Luke as a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. Acts began with Jesus telling his followers to spread the good news about his kingdom. And they would start in Jerusalem, then go out into the neighboring regions, and from there to the ends of the earth. Now, in Jerusalem, their message was received by many and opposed by many, especially by the leaders of the temple. They were scandalized by this new claim that the whole story of Israel had been fulfilled by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. One of these leaders was a man named Saul of Tarsus, who worked tirelessly to stop the movement. That is, until he met the risen Jesus himself. And this encounter transformed Saul from an enemy of Jesus into a herald of his kingdom. And so for years, he traveled about the Roman Empire using his Roman name, Paul, starting Jesus communities all over. And one of Paul's greatest desires was that all of these diverse communities would see themselves as one unified people, regardless of their differences, Jew or non-Jew, male or female, slave or free. Jesus was creating one unified family of equals living together under his rule. And this brings us to the final section of Acts. Back in Jerusalem, where the movement began, the Jewish followers of Jesus were suffering from a drought and food shortage. And Paul was so passionate about the church's unity that he began a major fundraising project among the diverse churches he had started. They would pool their money together so he and a group of representatives could take it as a relief gift to Jerusalem. But it's not safe for Paul in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders there dislike him so much They want him dead. And Paul knew he was walking into a trap. His friends all begged him not to go, but no one could stop him. And why would Paul risk his life to bring this gift? Couldn't he have sent someone else? Well, for Paul, this was personal. Jerusalem was where he used to participate in the murder of Jesus' followers. And now he gets to serve them. It's also where Jesus himself was executed. And so for Paul, it would be an honor to suffer there alongside his king. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and as expected, 
he's found by his enemies. A mob forms and they try to kill him. But Roman soldiers save his life by taking him into custody. The Jewish leaders are accusing Paul of starting a revolt against Rome, but they can't prove it. And the Romans don't know what to do with him. Yeah, they can see Paul's not a criminal, but his claim that a crucified Jewish man is the risen king of the world, it keeps getting him into trouble. And so Paul gets transferred from one court to another until he demands that his case be tried before the court of Caesar in Rome. And so they happily ship him off. Now, throughout this section of Acts, Luke, the writer of the story, has portrayed Paul's trials and imprisonments so that they resemble his previous stories of Jesus' trials and imprisonment. Luke's making an important point. When the people of Jesus follow the way of Jesus, their stories will begin to look like his story, which is beautiful, but it also comes with a cost. On the way to Rome, the boat carrying Paul is hit by a violent storm, and everyone freaks out. Except for Paul. He's below deck hosting a meal, just like Jesus did the night before his trial. Paul blesses and then breaks the bread, promising that God is with them through this storm. And the next day, the ship hits and then breaks apart on the rocks, but everyone's washed safely ashore. Okay. So a bit of background there for you. Paul is in this boat in a storm. He's being conveyed to Rome. He's under Roman guard. There's a centurion with him called Julius who's looking after him. And there's about 300 people on this boat. And they set out around the Mediterranean coast, working their way to Rome, where Paul's appealed to be tried by Caesar. And this isn't a Mediterranean cruise, okay? It's, uh, it's bleak, okay? There's a prison ship. Uh, there's a Roman guard on there. There's prisoners. It's uh, difficult sailing conditions. It's around this time of year when sailing wasn't recommended in that part of the world. And so they were wet, they were cold, they were hungry, probably seasick and just really having a bit of a bleak time. Um, And in these conditions, Paul gives us a beautiful insight into keeping our eyes on God in the midst of difficult circumstances. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 27. We'll be looking at this as well uh, on the screens. So I'm going to pick it up in verse verse 9. There we go. Much time had been lost and the sailing had become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So it was about mid-October time. And Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives. And so Paul is trying right after the big journey across uh, to Rome. And Paul says, this is the wrong time of the year to do it. This is a time when it's going to be difficult And Paul's not doing this on the basis of any kind of supernatural gifting. He's just using common sense. Common sense. And because, after all, it says he'd been shipwrecked and cast adrift three times. He's got an experience of being on the sea in difficult situations. So the first thing I want to talk about today is words of wisdom. And wisdom, simple common sense into a situation. Sometimes when you're in a storm... And a difficult circumstance, all you really need initially is good common sense. You need a friend, or maybe you are that friend, to say to you, two plus two does equal four, and if you keep doing that, this will happen. Or if you keep thinking that, this will happen, or you'll go this way. And sometimes God will use us just basically to bring common sense, words of wisdom, into a situation. And it can be as simple as, well, have you thought about this? Or maybe when you do that, maybe you need to approach it differently. Or maybe there's a different way of thinking about that. 
It says in Colossians 1 that we're to teach and admonish each other with all wisdom. And so we speak from our experience, our life experience, and our experience in God. And that's what Paul tried to do in this situation. He said, guys, this is a bad time to travel. You know, you're risking the ship, you're risking life and limb if you set out on this voyage at this time of year. Have you thought about that? And when you're facing a storm, it's sometimes really nice for someone to come alongside you in love and say, here's some, here's some common sense, here's some wisdom. Because sometimes in storms, we just lose our bearings. We lose our bearings and we start doing all sorts of things that are contrary to the direction we want to go or the goal that we've got before us. And life coaches make a fortune telling people simple stuff because we lose our bearings when things get difficult. And so you could be someone who brings wisdom to somebody else in a storm or you could be someone that receives wisdom from somebody else in a storm. So I'd encourage you, don't be frightened about speaking common sense to your brothers and sisters in Christ because it might be common sense to you at that moment but they might have lost sight of that. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Always in love and grace, you bring in those words. In this story, Paul loses the argument. They sail on regardless. So Paul's brought common sense, but it hasn't had an effect. They press on. And initially, things go fairly well in the story. They, they make uh, good progress. They get about 40 miles towards a harbour called Phoenix in Crete. But then things start to go really downhill for them. They encounter a hurricane in the middle of the Mediterranean. And... Uh, you can read all through there in the, in, the, in the story in Acts 27. They use a sea anchor to try and slow the boat down. They have to lash the boat together with ropes to hold the planks together. And uh, they really are in trouble. They really are in trouble as these gale force winds smash against the boat. Just imagine being in that boat. Some of you would hate it, wouldn't you? Just think about the boat coming apart at the seams in a storm, you know, in the middle of the sea. I mean, it, that's where they were. And they were absolutely desperate and then they face the challenge of the ship being driven on to ground and broken up on these treacherous sandbars that are mentioned in the scriptures and it says after a while down there in verse 20 they got to a point where they couldn't navigate anymore they'd done everything they could do they'd had no options left and it says finally we gave up all hope of being saved they believed at that point they were going to drown that was the end of them. They tried everything they could as sailors. They couldn't do anything more to bring about salvation. They were really, really up against it. And yet Paul, in the midst of all this incredible danger and difficulty, has been somehow maintaining his connection with God and maintaining his expectation of God in the situation. And he, he stands up and says these incredible words. He says, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail. Okay, told you so, T-shirt, but hey... And that, and that tells us that his first advice was just simply advice. It wasn't a God word. It wasn't a prophecy. It was just good advice. So, guys, you still listen to my advice, but you didn't. Here we are. And then you've been spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sailed with you. So, keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen, just as you told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Paul has moved from good advice to prophetic declaration. Okay, he's had an encounter with God, and God has spoken to him about what's going to happen with this boat in this storm. 
Isn't it extraordinary? That he stands up and makes this declaration in the middle of a storm where the boat is coming apart at the seams. They've got no options left. He says, chin up, guys. We're all going to survive. He has this extraordinary confidence because of his connection with God. It says in 2 Corinthians 14, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging and comfort. And that's exactly what he did in the midst of this extraordinary situation. Paul uses the storm as a way to point people back to God. The God who saves, the God who cares, the God who loves. I can imagine him being in the depths of that ship interceding, you know, while they're trying everything to save the ship. He's interceding and maintaining his connection with God. And God responds with this extraordinary prophetic vision of the future. Everyone will be saved, but the ship will be lost. They will run aground on some island. All these details about what's going to happen, so explicit, incredibly detailed prophecy that comes to Paul. And Paul has no control over any of it. He can't make it happen. He can't save those people. He can't steer the boat onto onto being run aground. He has no control over what God has told him to say. But he says, I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. And sometimes in the worst circumstances, God will come through with incredible clarity about what is going to happen. We had a very distressing situation in our church a number of years ago where a woman left a note for her husband saying she was going to kill herself. And she left the note and disappeared. And no one knew where she was. So we prayed and we prayed and the police were looking for her and friends were looking for her. And we prayed and God spoke to us and said, she's in a certain location. She's in a service station on a motorway. Go get her. So we sent a car down there to this uh, motel at this service station and then knocked on the desk and said, is so-and-so here? And they said, yeah, she's booked in. They went and knocked on the door and she opened the door and we said, we've come to get you, come to take you home. In the worst situation, God can speak the most powerful prophetic word and we should have expectation that that can happen. It's often in those times that God wants to shine. It's in those times that God wants to use us. That's why we're so passionate about encouraging you and saying, if God's given you a word, if you think you've got a word, please share it. Please share what, we, what you think, that it's God. I'm sure Paul was fairly confident, but he couldn't have been 100% certain that what he said was going to happen. He, re- he risked rejection. He risked the sailors getting angry and throwing him into the storm. He risked a whole load of things by making those detailed declarations about what he believed God would do. And so we have these uh, opportunities in difficult situations to say, God, will you use me to prophetically speak into this situation? Will you use me? Now, the, the, the story continues. The boat is driven on for another 14 days in the storm after Paul has made his declaration. And at this point, the sailors try to get away. They try and lower the lifeboat and jump in and, and, and make a break for it. And Paul says, look, if they go, we all go. Because remember the word? Not one of us will be lost. And so there's something about us staying together that makes this word come to pass. And so they pulled the boat in and they prevented the sailors from escaping. So prophetic words are really important in times of storm. And I encourage you to expect God to use you when things get tough. Not just when things 
are going okay. Because when things are tough, that's when God wants to shine. That's when God wants to speak in powerfully and show that he's the God who cares, the God who loves, the God of salvation. On the 15th day, Paul again speaks into the situation. He says, for the last 14 days, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now, I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. That would have been hugely encouraging to me, but I'd have still been listening. (laughs) After his prophetic words come words of encouragement. He says, look, you need to look after yourself. Physically, naturally, you haven't eaten. If my words are true, we're going to have to swim from a boat that's broken up. We're going to have to swim to shore. You're going to need your strength. You're going to need to eat. You have to keep your physical strength up. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves, as we partner with God, the stuff that we have to do to allow him to do what he has to do. We have to partner with God. We can't just put it all onto God. So what's the part that we have to play to partner with God's promises? to partner with God's prophecies. What's the part that we have to do? And for these guys on the boat, it was they needed to eat. So they had enough strength to swim to shore when that boat broke up. And so Paul says, we've got to partner with this. We've got to connect with this. We've got to keep healthy. We've got to keep connected. We've got to keep vital. There was no pulling up to harbour and walking down a gangplank for these guys. Challenges lay ahead for them. They needed their strength. And again, how can you help someone partner with God's promises in their life? What has God spoken over them? What has God spoken over you? How can you get alongside them and say, look, God spoke, didn't he? God said, you need to, you need to keep partnering with that promise. What do you need to do? What's the part that you have to play? It could be just something as simple as just keeping well, keeping a routine, making simple choices that help you partner with what God wants to do in your life. So Paul uses this meal, as we saw in the video, to point them back to God. He took bread and he gave thanks to God in front of them and he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food. And altogether there were 276 of them on, on board the boat. And so Paul uses the opportunity of the meal to point them back to God. It's like a communion served on a boat in a storm to point them back to God, the source of all things, the source of the food, even the source of the storm, to remind them who's in control, who they should look to. Words of thankfulness are really important when we're in stormy situations because the first thing that often goes in our lives is giving thanks. When things get difficult, the first thing we tend to stop doing is thanking God and praising God because we don't feel like it anymore. Our emotions have kind of left, and we don't feel like we want to thank God. We don't feel like we want to thank other people. We don't feel like we want to lift our heads, because it's easier to go into the pain, go into the storm. And so when Paul takes that bread and he breaks it and effectively serves communion to 276 people on board a boat in a storm, he's reminding them this is an act of faith. Where is our faith? Who's our faith located in today? Who who has spoken into our lives? Who do we trust? He gives thanks to God in front of all of them and points them back to God. 
He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say give thanks in good circumstances. It says give thanks in all circumstances. And so we're called, however stormy our lives are, to still give our thanks, to bring our thanks as an offering. And sometimes it's a discipline to say thank you when we don't feel like it. But it's an offering that we make. It's a sacrifice that we make. Thankfulness in your scriptures is it's a kind of a kingdom multiplier. It's like a big time sign. When Jesus fed the 4,000 and the 5,000, the first thing he did was take the small, tiny picnic that he had and gave thanks. And it was multiplied to feed those huge crowds. And when we give thankfulness in whatever situations we face, it's like a kingdom multiplier. It will multiply the sense of God in your own life and the activity of God around you if we can maintain an attitude of thankfulness. Even giving thanks for our enemies, the people we don't like, the people who hurt us, the people who are difficult to us. Giving thanks for them and praying for them. Thankfulness kind of parts the clouds and lets us get a bearing again on who God is and who we are. It kind of gives us a perspective back. Well, we're coming to the end of our maritime adventure in this story and sensing they're nearing land in the story, they try and lighten the load and they throw everything off they can. And it's this point that Paul's prophecy begins to unfold because the, the, sheep, the ship is beached on a sandbar and begins to get caught and the back end of the boat is being smashed to pieces and the front end of the boat is trapped in the sand. And the soldiers decide that if they'll be held responsible if any of the prisoners escape. So the first thing they think is, let's kill the prisoners. Let's kill the prisoners and we can get off the boat. And so right at the very end, I've been saved from the storm, it seems like they're actually going to be put to death at the hands of of the Romans, but Julius, the centurion who's in charge, wants to save Paul's life. He says this, the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Everyone. No one was lost, just as Paul had declared. So the centurion orders everyone to abandon ship. And everyone by in this, well, actually where they land is Malta. They land on the island of Malta. And um, I'm struck by what I call Paul's words of witness that must have so impacted that Roman centurion that was looking after him that he wanted to protect his life. There was enough connection and relationship between them that this Roman centurion wouldn't allow Paul to be put to death. And because he wouldn't allow Paul to be put to death, all the prisoners were spared. Everyone was spared. That witness had a massive effect on all those other lives. It made a huge difference. Paul's character, and he was like a conduit for God's presence, as we talked about last week. God's kingdom was flowing through him and touching the lives of the people around him. So much so that not one life was lost of that ship. All 276 people were saved. Isn't that extraordinary? Think about if your life saved 276 people. Think about the kingdom effect of your life in a situation to bring salvation physically, spiritually, to a group of people. It's a picture of what God wants each of us to be. 
You know, this is a, a real storm and a real boat and real people, but it's also a, a metaphor for the salvation that each one of us can bring if we have an expectation that God can use us, even in the worst circumstances. Don't ever underestimate the power of your story, your witness, what's uniquely happened to you. No one can take that from you. No one can change it. It might have ups and downs. It might have highs and lows, good and bad. But it's your story. And if God encounters you in that story, that story becomes a story of transformation and change. It's a powerful witness for touching the lives of other people. It says in the book of Revelation that evil is overcome by the words of your testimony. The devil would love to keep your mouth shut. He would love to keep you, all those words on the inside. Because evil is overcome by testimony. And testimony is when you speak about what God has done in your life. How God took you from here to here. Testimony is incredibly powerful. And it can be a, a bridge that helps other people connect with the love of God. So this is extraordinary, this story of God in the storm through the person of Paul. Even though he must have been suffering, as you know, he must, he's probably seasick and hungry and cold and wet and tired and miserable and feeling utterly sorry for himself. You know, why, oh, why did I appeal to Caesar? I could have stayed in the warm. And here I am, you know. But somehow he maintained his connection with God. And somehow... He brought God's presence and life onto that ship and everyone was touched and changed. You're called to bring words of life into storms of life. You're called to bring words of life into the storms of life. That's what part of your calling is. We all love to avoid trouble. But actually, God wants to place us in situations where there's trouble or difficulty because you're there to bring life into the middle of that storm. Now, the people begged Paul not to go. Don't go, Paul, because trouble lies that way. Stay here with us. They, cr- they wept on the beach, the believers, because he left them. He says, I'm compelled to go to Jerusalem, then on to Rome. I'm compelled by the Spirit to go into the storm. Our bodies, our flesh, the the part of us that doesn't want any trouble, doesn't want to go into the storm. It wants to stay comfortable and safe. But actually, sometimes God pushes us into the storm because in the storm, we bring those words of life for people. We bring those words of life. We're those kingdom agents. These sailors had reached utter hopelessness. They were expert mariners. They'd run out of options. They had nothing left. They tried everything. And then God comes in like a storm and said actually not one of you will be lost because I'm here in the middle of this you made a dumb decision but I'm still here I can be here in the dumbest of decisions I can take that situation and I can turn it around and I'd encourage all of us to try and live with the expectation of God in difficulty God in pain and God in hardship C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pain. 
And what he meant by that was sometimes, you know, it's easy to lose sight of God in the nice stuff. He said to the rich man, didn't he? You know, give it all away because it's a hindrance to you. It's harder for a rich man, you know, to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle because all this stuff's obscuring your connection with God. God will never leave us or forsake us. That's his promise in scripture. And so even if things feel incredibly bad or incredibly dark and we can't see God and we can't navigate by the things that we normally look to, the promise is God is there with us. And our expectation should be that he, he wants to meet us and he wants to use us. And this week you might have a situation where you're right alongside somebody who's going through an extraordinarily difficult time and you can speak into their life. You can bring a word of life. You can bring a word of encouragement. You can bring a word of prophecy. You can bring some good old-fashioned common sense. You can help them be thankful for what they do have. All these things God can use you to do in the midst of the storm. Because in the truth, he walks out to meet us, doesn't he? In the storm. He meets us right there. And our job is not to miss him. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.